Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we listen to your word, you would convict us of who Jesus is, convict us of his power and his graciousness, convict us that he is the one to whom we can turn for life. And we pray that you would help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly so that we would hear you speaking to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, why Cana? Uh, that's probably not the first question you had when you heard this portion of John's Gospel read. Uh, but when you see the build-up to this point in the story of Jesus in John's Gospel, the build-up in chapter 1, and when you recognise that, honestly, Cana is just a little north of Hicksville, it becomes a question worth asking. Uh, we've, in our series, kind of passed over the rest of uh, chapter 1 of John, but expectation is building around Jesus all through chapter 1. Reading through, we would have heard John the Baptist, a, a man recognised widely as a prophet of God, say publicly of Jesus that, well, he ranks before me, that he baptises with the Holy Spirit, that this is the Son of God. And following John's witness to Jesus, we would have seen Jesus start to gather followers and they are convinced about who Jesus is. So Andrew says to his brother Peter, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And Philip has called and he finds his friend Nathaniel and says to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. And after meeting Jesus, Nathanael says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What are they doing? Well, Jesus' followers are claiming that Jesus is the man. Right? He's the man God's people, the Jewish people, have been waiting for. They're claiming that Jesus is the fulfilment of prophecy, the King of Israel, whose rule God would establish the one who's going to sort things out and destroy their enemies and bring the peace, security and prosperity that God's prophets like Amos had promised to God's chosen people. And to top it off, in chapter 1, Jesus doesn't deny or hose down their enthusiasm. He basically says to them, you haven't seen anything yet. Truly, truly, Jesus said to them, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, Jesus is referring to an incident in the life of their ancestor, the ancestor of the Jewish people, Jacob, where he had had a vision of a stairway to heaven in Genesis 28. Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And at the end of that dream, it says this, Jacob awoke from his sleep and he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Jesus is actually saying to his followers that in a sense he is the house of God. That as they follow him they will see that he, the Son of Man, is the place where heaven and earth meet, that in his presence they are in the presence of God. And he is the one 
who can bring them into heaven. I mean, there is a big build-up in chapter 1 that Jesus' movement is gaining momentum. Great claims are being made by and for Jesus. And then they go to a wedding at Cana in Galilee on the third day. On the third day. There's always a slip-up in the slides and it's me. Right? They go to wedding at Cana in Galilee on the third day, a time note that deliberately links this story with Jesus gathering his first followers. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to it. Cana. Had you ever heard of it before? Heard of it outside the Bible? Well, the answer is no, not much is known about Cana. And that's actually the point. It was an obscure, small village, about nine miles, that is about 15 kilometres north of Nazareth, which despite Jesus living there, was actually another obscure, small village. In fact, when Nathaniel had first heard that Jesus had come from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he was reflecting local sentiment, what the local thought for Nathaniel came from Cana, that neighbouring village. He knew Nazareth's reputation. Oh, there were large, important cities, wealthy cities in Galilee, lying on important trade routes. And one of them, Sephora, as you can see in that map, he said, hopefully, uh, lies actually between Cana and Nazareth actually lies between them. But Nazareth, it was Hicksville, right? Much smaller, poor, a village whose con contact with a sophisticated and wealthy city actually lay basically in providing day labourers. And Cana, well, it was a village desperately trying to show that it was better than the neighbour Nazareth it was so like. But Jesus doesn't go to the big city. He goes to Cana. Now, if you were the man, if you were building a movement, if you wanted to show people what you had to offer, you wouldn't go to Cana. Oh, yes, he had a wedding invitation. But going to Cana and making that the place where you really showed your stuff, well, that's a bit like you know, winning the leadership of a political party, being on track to become PM, and then having your campaign launch on the side while attending a family wedding in... I need to be careful here so as not to... Offend, but let's say Bort or Pyramid Hill. All right? And this is the family wedding of the less reputable cousins. Oh, they're not bad. They just can't get their act together. This family whose wedding Jesus is attending, well, he is not going to improve his social reputation by associating with them. They are on the brink, as you heard, on the brink of a major social scandal. They're running out of wine. In fact, they have run out when the story starts. Weddings were a big deal in rural first century Palestine. The wedding was a whole village affair and the festivities could go on for a week with guests coming and going. 
Your reputation, your honour in the community depended on the kind of hospitality you showed over that week. To run out of something as essential as wine was to suffer public shame and disgrace for the couple and especially for the bridegroom's family, exposing either their poverty or incompetence and opening them to accusations of lack of respect for the bride's family and their guests. Now, that kind of failure in a small village culture was remembered and could even lead, we're told, to the groom's family being taken to court by the wife's relatives for the public shame that had been inflicted on them. It could lead to a legacy of bitterness and division, and so to run out of wine was a social catastrophe in an honour-shame culture. And running out of wine suggests that this family were poor or disorganised or unreliable or some combination of the above. Jesus wouldn't gain status by associating with them. But Jesus didn't just go to the wedding of this unimportant family in this obscure place. No, Jesus deliberately made this the place where he did the first of his signs, the beginning of his signs. This is where he started to show them his glory, to impress upon his followers his reality. What Jesus did here in Cain of Galilee was the first of the signs, the beginning of his signs, through which he revealed his glory. If you wanted to be known, wanted people to know what you could do, what you had to offer, would you do it in a place like Cana, among people of low wealth and status, out of sight and out of mind at the major population centres? Probably not. In fact, definitely not. So why Cana? Why make it the site of the first of your signs? Well, the answer to that question is found by asking another question first. What did Jesus show of himself at this event? Well, firstly, he revealed himself as a man with a sense of purpose. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So the lack of wine is first of all noticed or brought to Mary's attention, Jesus' mother. And for reasons we're not told in John, she tells Jesus about it with complete confidence that he can fix the problem. Now this is probably more than just being a doting mother. I mean, she'd lived with Jesus for many years and we know that she'd stored up all the events surrounding his birth in her heart and so she had justifiably high expectations of her boy. But his reply puts distance between her agenda and his. Woman, why do you involve me? It's literally, woman, what to me and to you? Now, woman's not a harsh form of address or as harsh as it may sound to us. From the cross... As Jesus is providing for Mary's welfare, he addresses her with the same term, woman, behold your son. And so there is respect and affection here. But the next phrase is not just a way of saying, this is not my problem. It's actually a way of saying, woman, your problems don't become my problems. You shouldn't expect to direct me in this. 
And Jesus continued, my hour has not yet come. See, Jesus is saying, I have an hour, a time. I know what I have come to do, what my work is and when it's to be done. In my work, I don't take direction from you. Jesus has a sense of purpose, as we'll see from his relationship with his Father God, learning from him the work the Father has sent him to do. It's the work the Father has given him. That's what he's come to do at the time the Father has determined and fulfilling this hour is Jesus' agenda. So he's not directed by the expectation of others, the expectations of his disciples, the expectations of the crowds and their conception of what the Christ should do, not directed even by the expectations of the family, even his mother. Jesus is saying, I walk to the beat of my own drum. And that's what that, that makes what he does next an even more deliberate revelation of himself. He is acting not because Mary has asked. He is acting because it suits his purpose. But Jesus does act. He gives instructions to the servants who have already been worded up by Mary and as you've heard they fill up these huge stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons. They fill them up to the brim. They draw some and they take it to the master of the banquet. And as we've heard, it's the best wine he's ever tasted. So the servants do as Jesus told them to do. And the water becomes wine. Now think about the extraordinary nature of what the servants witnessed. What does it take to turn water into wine? Andy's already reminded us, hasn't he? Sun and soil and rain and a grapevine, harvesters, fermenting barrels and thyme. It is something, though, when you think about it, that the creator God is doing all the time. He's the one who turns water into wine. Oh, yes, he does it normally by that sun and soil and rain and a grapevine, harvesters and fermenting barrels, but he is the one who does it. He's the one who sends the rain and the sunshine, who designed the fermentation process, gives life to vine and harvesters. Jesus shows here he has the creative power of God himself, has this creative power in his word. And as we've heard, it is a lot of wine, a lot of top quality wine, 75 to 115 litres in every stone jar, filled to the brim. So you've heard the estimate, the lower estimate's about 600 of the standard 750 mil bottles, the upper about a 1,000. See, the volume brings home how effortless this is for Jesus, how great his power, how generous his gift, and it is good wine, the best. The generous and rich abundance created by Jesus is meant to call to our minds what's promised in the Old Testament. When God establishes his reign, that time when he rescues his people from judgment, the time spoken of in Amos 9, when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. Jesus is showing that he has the power of God to bring the new age God has promised, to bring the salvation of God, 
that time of abundance and peace, of right relationship between God and his people where they're no longer under his judgment but enjoy his favour. But Jesus doesn't just show his power, the power of God here, does he? He shows us more. He shows that he is gracious, kind to the needy and undeserving. Think of his action, the sheer generosity of his gift, the abundance with which he has met their lack. He's quietly rescued them from social disgrace, a rescue he was under no obligation to provide, rescued them from a disgrace they were responsible for bringing on themselves. But now they and their reputation in the community will be enriched by the action of Jesus. And think of the secrecy of his provision. He doesn't draw attention to, 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 to their problem. He doesn't say, look, they've run out of wine. Gather round and let me show you what I can do. He doesn't embarrass them publicly to draw attention to himself. Only the servants and his disciples know. Jesus kindly preserves their reputation at the cost of not enhancing his own more widely. And think of the recipients, not just of the gift, but of this revelation of his glory. The recipients of the gift were, well, an unimportant, poor, young couple, people who couldn't do anything for Jesus. And besides his disciples, who witnessed these events, the revelation of Jesus' glory? The village dignitaries? No. The local wealthy? No. It was the servants, perhaps hired just for the occasion, you know, the catering staff, not even the partygoers, but the people who had been invisible to many, just taken for granted. Yet what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory. What does Jesus show of himself? His glory, which we've already seen. Chapter 1 is full of grace and truth. The grace and truth of the one sent from the Father. That is what we see here. Great grace, generous and thoughtful kindness. Oh, and truth, he is the real the genuine one from God, the one who's before John, the one who does the work of God and speaks the word of God. He revealed his glory here deliberately. And John recalls this revealing action of Jesus a sign. It reveals and in revealing it points beyond itself. It isn't done for its own sake as a simple display of power. But what does this sign Jesus deliberately perform Point two. Well, in showing how Jesus met the lack, supplied the need, prevented the shame of failure from engulfing this couple and their family, the sign points to who Jesus is and what he came to do. You see, Jesus didn't just come to be a wonder worker or to help us through the occasional difficulties and crises and ups and downs of life to bail us out constantly from the consequences of our shortcomings. No, there is a greater need, a greater lack that Jesus came to meet with his great grace and power. Now you might be sitting here thinking, I have no need. (laughs) Thinking that you're not like this marrying couple and their family, that you've got it together. And your resources are enough for you to do all that's expected of you, to live life enjoying the respect of others. 
You might even be tempted to look down on these country people and people like them and their kind of incompetence, on people who can only make it through life with the help of others. You might think you have no need, but you will run out. I've often preached on this passage at weddings, as some of you know, and in the promises the bride and groom make to each other, there's always this line, the final line, or one like it, till death do us part, until we are parted by death. Even there in the happiest of days, there's the acknowledgement of our human reality that one day we will run out of life, all of us. We have a finite, finite number of days and hours and death casts its shadow even over the sunniest of our days. It's true, isn't it? I have wedding photos of parents and grandparents, beautiful, happy, all gone. We run out of life. And that day is a day of humiliation. On the day of our death, all our promises are empty, all our boasting of power shown to be vain, all our achievements, all that we relied on to give us identity and status stripped from us, our possessions given to others to enjoy where put in the earth and left or consigned to the flames, <coughs> confined to an urn, indignities we would never allow if we were alive. And we die that death not just because we're children of Adam, human, and share in the death he has brought into the world by his disobedience to God. We die that death because of our own sin, our own rebellion against our good creator, our own choosing to believe that we know better than God and have a right to do what pleases us and not do what he tells us to do. Whether that rebellion seen in just ignoring him keeping him out of our lives rather than giving him thanks, or using the good gifts he gives us selfishly rather than in loving others, or by choosing the exact opposite of what he commands, to lie where he calls for truth, to injure where he calls for compassion. We run out of life because of our sin, and it is a day of loss and humiliation, and we will all be confronted with our lack, our need for life. Jesus, in his grace and power, says that he is the one who has come to meet your need, can meet your need. This is what we will hear him promise over and over again in the gospel. So, to the Samaritan woman he says, whoever drinks of the water I will give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give them, that's the spirit we'll see in John, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. <coughs> to a grieving Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He promises to meet that need and meeting that need, providing the life that will never run out, is the work that the Father has given him, the content of his hour. In the last week of his life, Jesus refers again to his hour, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Jesus' hour is the hour of his death. The death, like the death of a seed, that will be fruitful, that will bring life. But it was troubling to face that hour, troubling to face death. He goes on and says, Now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. A voice came from heaven, I've glorified it and I'll glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The content of Jesus' hour, the gospel tells us, is Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus' purpose was to die the death that would make him the saviour of the world, to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, to die the death that is the just penalty for our rebellion, against our Creator, for our ignoring of God, our disobeying of God, our using of God's good gifts to defy God. That is, he dies for our sin. To die and so fulfil the purpose of God in sending the Son into the world, his giving of his unique Son, so that he might be the source of eternal life to whoever believes in him. You see, this gracious, kind, generous and mighty act in turning the water into wine at this country wedding is to point you to the even greater, more gracious and loving act of Jesus on the cross, doing what only God can do, bringing life from death and doing it freely because he is the gracious and faithful God, the Son of God, the Word become flesh, dying the death that we become the source of eternal life for you, if you'll believe him, giving you a gift you could never deserve. And that's why it happens in Cana, this beginning of signs. It's so that you would know his life-giving power and grace are for you, if you'll believe him. You see, at Cana, this demonstration of the grace and power of God, this revelation of his glory is made for ordinary people before ordinary people. Isn't that wonderful? It's not before the rich and powerful, not for the talented and useful, not even for those who had it all together, not for those who Jesus thought might one day be useful for his cause. It's a Cana from the start, the beginning of Jesus' ministry so that we would know his grace and power is for you and I, people who don't occupy positions of power, people who may be doing the ordinary menial jobs, the humdrum, like looking after children or tending the sick or digging trenches or writing code or stacking shelves or sitting exams, people who may not have it all together. Jesus chose Cana at Galilee. He made this the beginning of his signs so that you 
would know from the beginning that the revelation of his glory in his coming is for you. The revelation of his glory on the cross is for you. The generous gift of life he graciously and freely gives to all who will turn to him, all who will trust him, is for you. It says the disciples saw his glory and believed on him. Oh, they didn't understand everything yet. They still had a lot of wrong expectations about Jesus that Jesus would have to correct. But they saw and they believed that he was the one sent from the Father, the one who could bring the life of the age to come, the one who is gracious to the needy. Perhaps the Lord Jesus, through the words of his gospel, has revealed his glory to you for the first time. You know he is the glorious son who graciously can give life. Well, if you've seen his glory, believe. Put your trust in Jesus and his promise and come and talk, but start on the journey of trusting and learning more about Jesus. But I know many of you already here believe. I pray that in seeing Jesus' glory at Cana, you would be renewed in your conviction of the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is. Convicted again of his power, the power of the creator, to bring the life of the age to come, that life that will never run dry by his word. And convicted of his generous kindness, of his kindness to people whose lives are messy and fall short and fall apart, people like us. Draw near to him for renewed life. Draw near in the need, the lack we so often feel, to find it met in him generously and without reproach. Draw near to find that love and life and the means of persevering. I hope you're convicted of that power and gracious so that you'll listen to Mary. That's right. Here are Mary's only spoken words in this gospel. And she speaks actually as a believer, to believers, to those servants who will do what Jesus says. And what does she say? Do whatever he tells you. Listen to Mary. Do whatever he tells you, whether that's to confidently confess Jesus amongst your unbelieving friends and family, or to stay faithful in a hard relationship, or to love your enemy, or to keep your word, or to set your mind on the things above, to serve God alone, not money. Do whatever he tells you. Because as the servants found, this is the way to see his glory manifested, revealed in your own life, to have your own want satisfied. Believe and do whatever he tells you. And Jesus, the eternal son, the word become flesh, full of grace and truth, he can be trusted to deliver, to deliver to you what he promises to all who trust him. Life, the life of the age to come, life bubbling up in your hearts, renewing each day 
life that will sustain you to the resurrection and bring you to the new heaven and earth. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray as we hear your word that we would see and be convicted of Jesus' glory for ourselves. And as we trust him, as we believe, as we do what he says, we pray that his glory would be manifested, revealed in our own lives and amongst us, so we would always be able to delight in his power and grace, his truth and kindness, and others also would see and believe and find life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.